Thanksgiving has always been a fixture in the Christian church. I don't mean the holiday. I mean the actual giving of thanks unto God. The church, as we've already said, was bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're betrothed to Jesus as the bride of Christ. We inherit heavenly blessings and even return to earth to reign with our Lord upon the earth for a thousand years. Our eternal security, or you could put it this way, our eternal safety was won by Jesus so that when you're in Jesus, you're safe for all eternity. You don't have to worry about demonic attack or burning fires of hell. That's the future. In the present, we have peace. We have joy that is unspeakable in our relationship with Christ. It really is impossible to know that we deserve to be cast away forever from the presence of God, thrown into the outer darkness, put into the lake of fire, and realize that he prevented that, that he drew us to Christ, gave us the faith to believe when we believe, saved us from all of our sins, and actually adopted us into his family, and now uses us in ministry in the world to glorify his name. It's impossible to understand that and not to give thanks. Would you agree? The spirit of Jesus himself wells up inside of us like a fountain of joy. He inside of us refreshes our souls. He reminds us God is our Father and testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. God persists in his undying love for us no matter how we act. He doesn't stop loving us. That's amazing. He is loving through our inconsistencies, loving through our rebellion, loving through our lusts. He doesn't love our pride, our selfishness, our greed, and our lust, but he loves us through it. And that's amazing. As Jude put it, we are beloved in God the Father, and we are kept for Jesus Christ. So yes, yes, thanksgiving to God is very appropriate. It's why the church has always done it, that we don't pause on Thanksgiving Day to give thanks to ourselves or our lucky stars. We give thanks to the one who deserves the thanks. In fact, this is what the Spirit of Jesus produces in us. He produces the thankfulness thankful heart in us that comes out as thanksgiving. Often that expression of thanksgiving comes just the way you heard it a few minutes ago in times of songs. This Thanksgiving Sunday, it's going to be our privilege to meditate on a, what I'll call a sunny portion of the scriptures to stimulate us in thanksgiving. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read verses 18 through 21 and make a few comments and observations and meditations from this beautiful text. Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. And I'll read, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is excess or dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and literally it is, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. What a potent and uplifting segment of Scripture for our times of worship together that are in focus primarily in the text. Here in the second half of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he is exhorting believers in Jesus to live true to Christ. You have a calling to salvation, now live in a manner that's worthy of that calling. 
So often we see in the world people calling themselves Christians, but they don't live like Christians, and that brings kind of shame to the name of Christ, and we don't want that. We have a great calling. The calling is something we don't have time to talk about in detail, but it's in chapters 1 through 3. If you want something to read this week, read chapters 1 through 3. It's one phrase and one sentence and one paragraph after another of all the things that God has done for us in Christ. In the second half of the letter of Ephesians, that is chapters 4, 5, and 6, Paul likens the Christian life to a walk. We're going to walk, and we're going to walk with God, and we're going to walk in the light, and we're going to walk in love as Christ loved us. And then you get into chapter 5, the middle of that, it says you need to walk in a wise way, in a manner that pleases the Lord, in a manner that shows you know the will of God. It's a walk that will continually shine like holy lights, it says in verse 8 of chapter 5, in the midst of a dark and sexually perverse kind of a world. Closer to our text, if you look at verse 15, it's a walk that constantly wants to learn to apply God's word, God's wisdom to our life situations. You don't want to accumulate just knowledge, Bible knowledge. You went through a book of the Bible. You understand a book of the Bible better. You want to understand how all those truths relate to your life situations and your relationships so that you can apply it. Only as you apply the word of God in your life are you truly a wise person. That's what he's writing about in here. So he's Paul is urging Christians to walk in love, walk in holiness, walk in wisdom, walk in the light, and do it in the midst of unloving people, unholy people, and very foolish people, people who practice bitterness and malice instead of love. They practice sexual immorality instead of holiness. They practice drunkenness instead of wisdom from the Spirit. That's who you live around. That's who you work around. And in the midst of that, that's how you are to live, and that's how I am to live. That's a tall order, wouldn't you agree? When everyone is persuading you and the voices are all going in one direction to say, no, I'm not going to hide, I'm going to be a light, I'm going to go contrary to that, I'm going to swim upstream, I'm going to go against the grain, that's hard, right? How is it that we can live up to our Christian calling? How can we do that in the midst of a sin-saturated society? We, too, are surrounded by a decadent culture. Are we not? The humor, the entertainment, just the the conversation that is around us. It's miserable. Well, the answer to the power is in verse 18. Look down at it. That actually, verse 18, is the key verse for this short paragraph. It may be the most important verse in the second half of this letter because it really shows us where all the power for the the, uh, exhortations that were given comes from. The power of the Christian walk is in being full of the Holy Spirit. It says being full of the Spirit, but it means the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul uses that phrase in his his writings. He's talking about the Holy Spirit who's inside of you. He's already inside of you. You You don't have to ask him to come in. You just need to learn to let him have his way as he is inside of you. You and I need that. We need to be permeated by, influenced by the Holy Spirit. We don't need to be indwelt. We're already indwelt. We need to learn to yield to the power of Christ's Spirit. You need to learn to say no to you and your desires and yes to the Spirit of God and watch Him push you with power in a direction you didn't believe was possible by yourself. That's who you have. He, not you, not me, enables the worthy Christian walk. That's the meaning of that passive present command in verse 18, pleirustha. Literally, if you would try to word it, it would be this. 
It would be be being filled with the Spirit. It's a passive command, so you have to let it happen to you. Let yourself continuously be full of the Spirit is the idea. Let Him fill you. Let the Spirit continuously control your thoughts and your behavior and that hardest of all instruments to control, your tongue. How would one know if a person is filled with the Spirit or not? you got a lot of ideas about that. When someone is really gripped by the Holy Spirit, what do you see? What does he look like? Does he shake all over? Is that what happens in some churches? You would say, that must be it. Look at that guy up front, and he's shaking all over. Spirit of God must have grabbed him, and he's about to do something with him. No. Would it be that you would speak in ecstatic utterances? Why would God want you to speak in ecstatic utterances? There's hundreds of languages in this world in which he can be praised. That makes no sense. That's not even the gift of of languages and tongues. Would you have some strange dreams and some experiences, and you'd be able to tell about these visions and dreams that you had just to prove that the Spirit of God had overcome you and had taken you? No, not at all. What does the Holy Spirit, who wrote this passage, say in this passage? What does a man or a woman look like who's full of the Spirit? Well, look at verse 19. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 21. There it is. There are a series of four phrases, if you like grammar, four participial phrases. Each of them is directly connected back to the imperative, the command in verse 18. The command to us in verse 18 is be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. The evidence or the result or the fruit of that fullness is described in verses 19 to 21. You want to know what someone who's affected by Jesus and moved along by the Spirit of God looks like? You have it right there in that passage. Some of your translations don't show it all that well, but they are the I-N-G words that are there. Be filled with the Spirit. How? Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Be filled with the Spirit. How? Singing and making melody to the Lord in your hearts. Be filled with the Spirit. How? Always giving thanks to God the Father. Be filled with the Spirit. There's no command in verse 21. How? Being subject to one another. That's what it actually reads. Those four phrases describe the results or the manifestations of spirit fullness in the gathering of the believers, especially during their time of worship together, like we're doing now. And those four things are the mark, they are the sign, they are the evidence A human being, a believer, is full of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be full of the Holy Spirit? Do you want the Holy Spirit to take over more control of you? That's what you're wanting in your life. You're wanting more of that. You want to see the results of that. Rather than the mayhem or the church turned into a wild show, as some churches seem to indicate, or some kind of mindless emotion that overtakes them, Paul says the true marks of spirit-filled, spirit-driven church people are speaking, singing, thanking, and submitting. That's what it is. The Spirit-filled life is not, is not like drunkenness. He says, don't be drunk with wine, right? That's excess. That's dissipation. It's something very much the opposite. Wine takes over the life, and wine leads you into foolishness, and it leads you into excess. But the Spirit of God is very much the opposite. He brings about a joy without getting drunk. Amazing, right? Sometimes Christians, you know, people think Christians are drunk. They're laughing and enjoying one another. Wow, what's in that drink? No, it's called the drink of the Spirit, right? 
Drunkenness produces the loss of bodily control. You say, Pastor Leek, how do you know that? Well, I'm talking about back in the day, guys, okay? Drunkenness produces foolish behavior, much foolish behavior. Even unbelievers recognize that. Drunkenness reduces the mind to mush. You can't even put things together right. In contrast, in Galatians 5, Paul taught that the fruit of the Spirit is what? Do you remember? Love, joy, say it with me, peace, patience, kindness, and all the rest. So today, we're going to consider just the first three manifestations of the Spirit-filled church, and it's going to relate it to thanksgiving. And I want to look at this just so that our our worship will be led by God's Spirit indeed. If you want to, jot these down as we go along here. The first manifestation is edifying with the truth. Look at verse 19 and the very beginning of that. It says, speaking, that's from the command, be full of the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual Songs. Speaking leo is a very common verb in the New Testament. It's broad enough to include all kinds of human speaking, all kinds of sounds, speaking, singing, calling, whatever it is. The word truth is not actually found in the verse, but something has to be spoken, obviously, and since they're in the worship service, it's going to be a time of speaking. That would be speaking truth. Paul wrote back in chapter 4, verse 25, he said, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So it's the speaking of truth that Paul is referring to here in the context of a worship service, where notice they are speaking truth to each other. Do you see that? The early church spent much time learning and exhorting in truth, and a lot of it was to one another. Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, pay attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. So when they gathered together in their worship service, they spent a lot of time teaching and listening. Pick up the word before the congregation, read it out loud, think about the truth, and teach from it. We've been going through the book of Acts, and in Acts you see that doctrinal instruction permeated their meetings. So says Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. When people say, hey, let's get back to the New Testament kind of worship, the kind of worship that they had back in the early church, they need to understand that that early church focused on teaching. They focused on doctrine. Doctrine is what drove their prayers. Doctrine is what drove their songs. Doctrine is what drove their fellowship. A spirit-driven worship, what does that look like? It's where they're speaking to one another truth. It's truth-driven. It's word-driven worship. That's spirit driven worship. Now, Paul here means that we are to speak songs to one another, which means really we're singing them. These songs convey truth to each other. That's a new thought for some people, that sometimes when we come to church, some of the songs we sing, we sing to the Lord. But did you know some of the songs that we sing in church, we sing to each other? Did you know that? Some believe we should only sing to God. That is one group of songs, obviously, we should be singing, yes, but that's not the only kind of song that we sing in church. Sometimes we sing across the room. That's why we like the little bit of the fan shape here, right? And when we have, you know, another uh, worship center that we have, fan it out so that people can see each other because you're singing some of these songs to encourage one another with truth. Martin Luther taught that music is the handmaiden of theology. And so, uh, and so we want to use that to convey the same theology that we're learning from the pulpit. Music helps drives home truth to our hearts. 
Sometimes when you leave here, you're singing a song. I, I hope it's good doctrine. Well, I want you singing good stuff in your heart because you'll remember that, and that'll go on in the Monday and Tuesday. You'll be able to sing that on and on because you'll remember that. Some songs were for exhortation to the saints. Others were for exaltation to the Lord above. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16, which is kind of a parallel passage to this, I won't turn there right now, but you can look at it. It says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. And then it says, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the same triad that's given there. The songs teach, the songs admonish, they help the Word to richly dwell inside of us so that it takes over our thinking so the Spirit of God can fill us. It's a spiritual stimulant to us, and it's the way we stimulate one another unto the Spirit-filled life. We sing these songs, and we encourage each other in the faith. We sing these songs, and they motivate us on to obedience to the Lord. It's done by means of songs. So how does that actually work? Well, it's really simple. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above. Who are you saying that to? Not God. He already knows that. You're saying that to each other, right? Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in heaven above. That's who we're saying it to. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and grieves to bear. Who are you saying that to each other, reminding each other? What a friend we have in Jesus. Hey, this is your opportunity to preach on Sunday mornings. You say these, you're preaching to each other. You're exhorting in the truth. You give testimony to your soul when you sing. It is well with my soul, right? And God has given us the joy. Listen, God has given us freedom to be exhorted by a wide range of songs and styles, and we need to recognize that. A very broad and wide range of songs and styles. The Lord doesn't doesn't bring it into one style or one method. He's, he himself has creativity, and he put that creativity in his people. And we are to have a wide range of these in our worship services. Blessed will be the soul who learns to appreciate not just one kind of music, not just one kind of the presentation of song, but the wide variety, the many and the varied. This is so important in a day and an age where music style ends up being a source of controversy and anger in the church much more than the things that are so much more important, like the doctrines of the Christian faith. Look again at the three that Paul lists, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. You might think that these are radically different. There's a lot of overlap in these. They are distinct, but they're not completely distinct. You would find overlaps in these categories. But what they're meant to say is there's a range of the kinds of arrangement that you can have in your times of singing in order to exhort one another and exalt God. The Psalms, the Psalmos, refer primarily to the singing of the Old Testament Psalter in Scripture. The songs of David, in other words, the ones that he put to music in a variety of ways, and we don't know how he put it in the Hebrew style of music. We don't know what that was. Also, possibly, it refers to other Christian psalms, such as mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 26. These psalms particularly enriched the congregation because they spoke of God's mighty acts, what he has done in history, who he is in his great person as well. And the related verb primarily meant the plucking of strings, like a harp or many other stringed instruments that they would have in those days. And so the Psalms refer to songs accompanied by musical instrument. 
The hymns, uh, umnas, were similar, but they were mostly doctrinal songs developed by the church, and often they were focused on the work of Jesus Christ. You know, the pagan religions had their hymns as well, and they would celebrate their gods. They would sing them, and they would dance before their gods, and they would pass out food and sometimes engage in gross immorality. There were hymns that were sung to Apollo and to Isis and other gods. Christians used hymns to exalt the name of their God, Jesus Christ. Yes, very early on, the Christians were convinced Jesus was God in human flesh. In Acts chapter 16, it says that Paul and Silas in prison were singing hymns of praise to God. The New Testament probably even contains some of the wording of those early hymns, such as 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. That looks like it has the cadence of a, of a hymn to it. And then the third category was ode, the spiritual songs. We get our word odes from that. But it's the broadest category of the three. It likely covers some of the other two but it would also include songs of testimony, what God has done for you, songs of praise to God, songs of edification, songs with spiritual themes. The Lutheran scholar, Dr. Lenski, gives this good definition, quote, the Greek word ode is wider in the meaning and refers to any song or poem, religious or secular, hence it is placed last and needs the adjective spiritual odes or spiritual songs to distinguish them from the secular songs, end quote. By using these three terms, again, Paul is expressing great latitude that the church has in the kinds of songs that some would write and develop, the kinds of instruments that would be played, the kinds of rhythm that would be part of those songs. Listen, Paul was not a stick in the mud when it came to worship. When it came to worship expression, he wanted expression. He was not hung up on one style of music or one arrangement or one way that it would be presented. And listen, brothers and sisters, neither should we. We shouldn't be hung up on that. And I say that to all of us because different people get hung up on different things. In our worship services, I hope and pray that the younger people will pay attention during the times of the ancient hymns and really learn from the doctrinal instruction that is there. They give rich doctrinal instruction. What can top the fullness of salvation captured in the hymn, and can it be? No condemnation now I dread, Jesus, and all in him is mine, alive in him my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Just ponder that. That's rich. Or the Trinitarian theology of holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Hymns also were to provide correction. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count what? But lost and poor contempt on what? All my pride. We're correcting ourselves when we sing that song. Or they can provide comfort. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And you got to say thee. And you got to have the old English thee there. Mess it up. It, it won't work otherwise. Every spiritual poet could wish that they would write precious words such as these. I pray that you're engaged in the hymns as we sing, and more on this theme as we go along. The second manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the time of worship is worshiping from the heart, worshiping from the heart. Notice the next phrase. It says, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. This speaks of direct praise towards God. Do you see that? They're both in the passage. This is to the Lord, toward the Lord, unto our, our King above, unto our Master, our Lord. 
And the instrument that God is most listening to is what? Your heart. Your heart. Unfortunately, in our entertainment-saturated culture, the church often manifests a man-centered approach to Sunday morning. Have you ever been in a worship service somewhere and you just kind of got the sense that the people up front were entertaining and the people sitting out there were being entertained? True worship requires different preparation for the time of worship. It requires different kind of leadership. Those singing in front should be worshiping. They should be what our eyes want to focus on, that they're leading us in worship by their adoring love of God. Unfortunately, the worship of God these days is often used just for man's feeling and man's benefit. It seems like we're going to just have the music to relax people, give them a good feeling, bring the money in, grow the program, make the pastor rich. But the Word of God says singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That means he's listening during this time. It's all about the Lord. It's all about returning with a heart of worship, as one of the contemporary songs says, to the Lord. It's all about him. The Word of God says sing to the Lord. He is the one who should have delight with what he hears in your heart as you sing. Now, sometimes your voice is going to sound pretty bad, okay? I got good news for you. Your heart can sound good. Your voice is all scratchy like mine has been the last few weeks, and you're like, yeah, I don't know if I'm on tune. Make sure your heart's in tune. And maybe sing just a slightly little bit less than the guy next to you. <laughs> But sing to the Lord, right? Like you do when you're all alone and nobody can hear you and judge, you know, whether or not you're in key and all of that. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in whose sight? Your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is your safety and he bought you back. Please be pleased with my attitude this morning. Worship must be right personally in the heart. Here's words from that song I lyrics from that song I just briefly mentioned. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within, through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. Do you know what a beautiful heart sounds like to the Lord above? It's a heart that is gripped with the truth of Christ and filled with thankfulness, filled with holy and heavenly affections. That's what God wants to see in you. That's his will for you. You don't have to worry about where does he want me to work and where does he want me to do this. We were out looking at used cars the other day. Which car should we buy? Is there a glow over one of these cars? You know, don't worry about any of that. Make sure your heart is thankful. Make sure your heart is holy. And then you're in the will of God, you see? He looks into your heart. People of God have always wanted to sing to the Lord and keep focused on him. Psalm 96, 1 and 2. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim good tidings of his salvation from day to day. Do you have a new song in your heart, something new God has done in your life, and it puts a song in your heart? That's spirit-filled worship. Psalm 33, 1. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. You can be righteous and be joyful. Did you know that? A lot of people think if you're righteous, you're just kind of dour and you're not having any fun. Everyone else is having fun and they're unrighteous. Be righteous and sing for joy. I would rather be righteous than unrighteous, right? It's so much better. And worship in the Holy Spirit and let him lead you. The Spirit must lift our hearts heavenward. 
What do we see when we look up to heaven? We see an invisible God, but what we hear of him is that he never changes, that he is the eternal spirit, that he spoke the worlds into existence, that he is holy, 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 thrice holy, that there are beings that we can't even describe that minister before him, one of which would cause all of us to fall on our faces right now and be petrified just seeing one of them. That's the kind of of environment in which he dwells above. And we're going to be one day entering into that and joining all of the other saints that we're singing and seeing Jesus Christ right there, the lamb who was slain, and knowing that his blood was shed for us and we're going to return as priests and as rulers to reign with Christ to the earth, as it says in Revelation. And our voice is going to get so loud and the place is going to shake. And that's who we're thinking about. That's, that's who we're thinking about when we lift our minds to heaven. He is indescribable. He is infinite. He is eternal. He's kind also, he's merciful and he's gracious. He's just and he's exacting and he's righteous in all of his ways. We can't fully fathom him. Praise choruses, take some grand spiritual theme like redemption or an attribute of God, like God's faithfulness, and they have us sing them directly to God and repeat that theme to God so it's drilled into us. By the way, there's nothing wrong with repetition in music. Most hymns have a chorus, and guess what? We come back and we sing the chorus over and over again, right? Again and again. And and so we know the chorus better than we know any other part of the hymn. Don't despise repetition. Just read Psalm 136 where the phrase, his loving kindness is everlasting, is repeated, I don't know, like 40 times. There's a word for godly, listen, godly, thoughtful repetition. Do you know what it's called? Meditation. Meditation. I would hope that those who have been in church longer will be open to new songs and new styles. Older songs, there's some oldies and goodies, but not all of the older songs were all that great in their theology. Some of them are kind of sentimental if you go back and look at them. Some of the lyrics and the music in modern praise music excel many of the pieces of the past. It's quite easy to see that some people put a lot of biblical thought into the writing of music and other people, not so much. You know, I, I don't want to sing praise songs without hymns that might diminish my contemplation of broader theology, but I don't want to sing hymns without praise choruses that might remove some of the heightened expressions of love we have towards God, some of the emotion that comes through the modern choruses. Some churches are exclusively into praise music. Some of them sing them continuously and seamlessly. If you take a look, a close look at what's going on, you see that they arrange it primarily to to kind of churn up people's emotions. It's about getting everybody their Sunday high, getting everybody their spiritual high for the day. They want to stir up the emotions. There's a name Jesus in there somewhere, a little bit about him saving me, but it's mostly about the drumming up the emotions. And you could tell when you're in the midst of that that that's what's going on. And frankly, I feel kind of like spiritually raped when that's going on. I feel like you're not really teaching me what's true here. You're just kind of dragging me along and expecting me to shut my mind down. That's not worship. I don't want that. You all see they're, they're working into the swaying of the hands, people falling down and weeping. You're like, what are they weeping about? They don't have the foggiest idea. 
In some people's twisted understanding of worship, they think that if you have to concentrate on the meaning of words, you've now lost worship. It's the exact opposite. If you've lost the meaning of the words, I don't know what you're doing anymore, but it's not worship. Could you imagine standing before God, and there he is in all of his beauty, and you're talking to him, and you're saying, like, and all this stuff. Here's the most magnificent being in front of you. You think he would be happy with that? Who are they singing to? He's indescribable. I could preach my whole life and not figure out a way to describe God. The intellect must be engaged. Just feel God. No. God is truth. God is life. And yes, we should have a lot of feeling that goes along with that. But it starts with the mind. The mind informs the will. The mind informs the emotions. The mind informs the body. And then you put all of it into that. We don't come here to get our weekly spiritual high. But contemporary music... Even with vigorous guitar and keyboard and, yes, drums and other percussion instruments, they have a vital place, along with all the others, in the collective church's expression of worship towards the Lord God Almighty. Yes, worship is to be led by the words and led by the mind, but the music helps the rest of your being lift up and express itself to God. Get out of yourself a little bit and learn to give Him what He deserves. Music without doctrine is dangerous, but doctrine without the will and the emotion is dead and stale. People who sing the right doctrine and have little life, little emotion in it are not properly worshiping either. Some people, frankly, appear afraid to express their love for God. Some get uncomfortable when worship begins to tug at their heart some, draws emotion to their face, deep emotional feeling generated by contemplation of what God has done. I would that more of you felt more freedom to express yourself, to express yourself emotionally to the Lord. As long as mind is what's leading you, raise your hands. Tell the Lord how great he is. Clap. Express yourself. If it's from the heart, then it's acceptable to God. Some churches, you know, won't even use musical instruments. I guess some want to avoid the controversy. A cappella sounds beautiful. I like to hear a cappella. If I heard that all the time, I would feel gypped. I want more. I want... God gave us musical instruments. How can you read Psalm 150 and the other places where it tries to list every, every instrument that they had in those days? They didn't have electric guitars there. Don't go looking for that in the Bible. We have new instruments. We can use those instruments. There are sounds that bring glory to the Lord also. The fuller use of music expression today. We had a little bit of that up here on the platform today where you see the strings and you see the guitars and the drums and the keyboard and the mixture. All of that is beautiful too. Acapella can be beautiful and sometimes we sing that way. But the wide assortment of spiritual music that comes up before the Lord is something we should not despise. Psalm 150, I mentioned that. Praise Him with trumpet sound. I love trumpets. Oh, I wish we had... I used to play the trumpet, but my teacher kept saying I sounded nasal. 
Year after year, the different teachers said, well, you sound too nasal. You know. So I gave it up. But I wish we had trumpet players and French horn and trombone and all of that brass, particularly on Easter Sunday, by the way, just to express with resounding music unto the Lord. Yes? Psalm 150 talks about cymbals, and it talks about resounding cymbals. You know what that is? That's a loud noise. That's for the Lord, right? Make a loud noise for Him. Rhythm and beat and the drum are all made by the Lord. They're part of what He's given the church to express its worship to Him with vigor. You see different cultures that take the drums more than other cultures, but it's part of our expression. Please look around this room. Look around and see who is seated here, would you? And see, there are people here that when we say break at the end, that's called amen, and we all go to our different places, you listen to different kinds of music. Did you know that? Some of you listen to country music. Some of you are into the classics. My mother, when she came here, she came from a high church with fantastic classical music, and she came here, and she heard some of the simple choruses we were singing. She's like, she didn't like it. She did not like it. It took her a while, but as she watched, in her words, some of the younger people praising the Lord and expressing themselves through some of this contemporary music, she started to love it because she saw them loving it. Do you see that? She learned, and this was in her 70s, guys, she learned in her 70s to love other kinds of music, maybe not so much the music, but to love singing with that kind of music because she saw other people loving it. Does that say something to you? that you can love the other styles. If you're into rap, you can learn to love the classics. If you're into the classics, you can learn to love other things as well. This is how God has made us. This is one of the ways we can express that we're one body in Christ by having this variety. It's not about contemporary versus traditional. The Bible's not about that. Just because it's old doesn't make it better. It's about whether we're focused on God-fearing truth or whether we're centered on ourselves and man. Music should exalt God. Music should accentuate the Word. We should never have the Word drowned out by a bunch of noise. Remember, the one instrument that God wants played the best in church on Sundays is your heart. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love. God of wonders beyond our galaxy, you are holy. You are holy. Sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord. So first, the spirit-filled church edifies with the truth and a variety of songs. Second, it worships from the heart to the Lord. And third and last, it gives thanks to God the Father. That's verse 20. Always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Not just thanksgiving, but prayer was a vital part of the early worship services. In 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Don't use your hands to be fighting each other with fists. Lift them up holy to the Lord. And God wanted the men in the worship service to lead in the prayers. God's Word exhorts the men in particular lead in public prayer and lift up hands to God. 
Acts chapter 14, verse 23, it says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Prayer was part of their services. Even special services like the sending out of the apostles or the laying on of hands of elders or the sending out of missionaries, they had special prayers that were part of them. What did they pray about? They made supplications to the Lord. They had praises to the Lord. They confessed sin to the Lord, but they also gave thanks to the Lord. They gave thanks to God. A major part of their prayers together were the giving of thanks to God. And and not quick ones either, like, thank you, God, for all our blessings, amen. It was not like that. You know how it is at food, you want to get into the turkey, right? You want to dive into the stuffing, you spotted something out of the corner of your eye, and you really want to get to that, Lord, we're so grateful, thank you, amen. And then that's that's, that's not worthy of him, is it? You know, the the food will be okay, just let it sit there a few, few more minutes and give thanks to God. You know what's so striking about this verse, verse 20, is the two walls that are in there. Always giving thanks for what? All things. That doesn't mean that we thank God for evil. That means we thank God for what he's doing in the midst of evil. Kind of covers everything, right? I thank God when the sun is shining. I thank God when the torrents are falling. I thank God when I have a great job. I thank God when I don't have a job at all. I thank God when my husband is loving me and remembering me, and I thank God when my husband seems to hate me. I thank God, not for the evil, but in the midst of all of the evil, for God is doing good. God is always good. God is always doing good. God is always working out good things in your life because you are inside Christ Jesus. Always giving thanks to God in the name of Christ. The Spirit of God wants us to recognize how much the Lord does for us. He wants us to recognize how much the Lord is doing for you right now. Even if you don't know the specifics, you do know this. He's conforming you to the image of Jesus. How does that sound? I am being led along by the Spirit of God. I have no idea where he's leading me, but I know what he's leading me into, and that is Christ-likeness. And that means love and joy and peace. The Spirit of God wants us to recognize what He will do for us in Christ, and the heart to recognize that and give thanks. It is not good enough for you to say, I'm thankful. God wants you to take your lips and give the sacrifice of thanksgiving. He wants you to give thanks. Say it. Say it to God. Thank you. It's not good enough when you serve your children and you give them this and you give them that and then you sacrifice for them here and you sacrifice for them there and then you come up to the child and you say, you know, you don't look so appreciative and they look up at you like, oh, I'm appreciative. Where was the giving of thanks? Where was the giving of thanks? That cost me $1,200, that toy. Where's the giving of thanks? I had to fight all that traffic to come pick you up from soccer practice. Where's the giving of thanks? Same thing with God. Where's the giving of thanks? It has to come out of your mouth. Thanksgiving is a divine strategy for pushing anxiety out of your mind and heart. Are you anxious and worried? God has a strategy for that. Give thanks. Then give thanks more. Then give thanks louder. Then keep doing the same. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with what? With what? 
thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. But you have to give the thanks, and you have to mean it, and you have to give it. You give weak thanks, maybe that's why you have weak peace. When your faith informs you that whatever is troubling you, God will deal with it. When you commit it to him and don't grab it back. When you cast your anxieties on him and then don't put it back and put it on your shoulders. When you cast it on him and you cast it away from you, as it says in 1 Peter 5, because he cares for you, that's what you do with your anxiety. Last time I checked, God is big. Would you agree? God is able 2 Corinthians 9, 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. That verse has four alls in it. That is why Colossians 3, 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks, giving thanks through him, to God the Father. Sometimes it doesn't work that way in our lives. Like on Sundays. We come in that back door, smile a little bit on our face, but grumbling's been going on. Grumbling's been going on a lot. There's been a lot of grumbling. There's been a lot of grumbling. And the Lord knows that. What good is it to come in here and say the thanks and then walk out and just continue the grumbling? Something has to change. Brothers and sisters, we need to encourage one another to give thanks. I'm not saying that we lack compassion when someone feels they need to unload. We need to be there for them. We need to listen well. And sometimes you just need to let them go on and on. Sometimes, gentlemen, your wives, they don't want you to solve their problems. They want you just to listen. Now, I'm not going to say any more on that. But then after the grumbling goes on and on and on, I love it when my wife, in a very feminine way, says something to me like, but the Lord has been good to us. Tom, you've been grumbling. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Turn your grumbling in your home around. Children, don't be grumbling against your parents. Wives, don't be grumbling against your husbands. Give thanks. What does a truly thankful person look like? I'll close with this. Thomas Watson, in the book we've been studying in the men's ministry, A Godly Man's Picture, has an extended answer. I'm going to run through it. Answer number one, we know that we are thankful when we are careful to register God's mercies. Write them down, in other words. If you write down how God has blessed you, you register them, you keep a journal, you write them down and you review them, you know that you're being thankful. Answer number two, when our hearts are the chief instrument in the music of praise. When, in other words, when our hearts are really in it, when we're singing and the music is going and it's not just the words memorized, our hearts are in it. Like Psalm 11 and verse 1, I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. Answer number three, when the favors which we receive endear our love to God even the more. In other words, when we get given something that's nice, we don't say it's about time. What we say to the Lord is, thank you so much. I love you even more. Answer number four, 
when we take all worthiness away from ourselves. In other words, when we never praise ourselves, when we're never complimenting ourselves, we're saying, no, it's the Lord who did it. Like Paul said, nevertheless, not me, but the grace of God inside of me. Answer number five, when we repay God's blessings with service, when we decide that it's not good enough just to say thank you, but now we want to go show the thank you by the way we serve in church. We don't sit at home saying thanks to God. We get busy serving the saints at church as well. Answer number six, when our hearts are more enlarged for spiritual things than they are for temporal mercies, do you give more thanks when you finally get that bonus at Christmas time, or do you give more thanks when you finally conquer some sin you've been struggling with? Answer number seven, when we are motivating others to the angelic work of praise. In other words, the thankfulness in your mind is so much so that you want others around you also to be giving thanks. You want to encourage them also to give thanks. You want to draw them out of their, out of their doldrums, and you want to bring them into the, to the cascading beauty of, of Christ. Answer number eight, when we not only speak God's praise, but we live it. In other words, we live in the very presence of God. When we go out, we sense he's always with us. Answer number nine, when we tell our children what God has done for us. Here is what he has done for us. And they see it, and they can tell mom and dad they're thankful. And I'll add one of my own, and that is, because this is my goal, when you catch yourself grumbling, because sometimes you're grumbling, you don't even know it. When you catch yourself grumbling and all of a sudden you wake up and you're like, I'm grumbling. Catch yourself. I do two things. I remember the goodness that God has done and then whatever I'm grumbling about, I say, let me put my energy into solving the problem rather than grumbling at God. Now, I pray that God fills you with his spirit so that you may be thankful and you may sing in your hearts to the Lord and you may speak encouragement and exhortation to one another Yes, during our times of worship, but beyond as well. For we serve a great God, and thanks be to God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father in heaven, how can we say it? How can we say it? But thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your endurance with our foolishness. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that we are washed in the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord. And we want to offer one last praise to you of thanksgiving before we depart. And thank you for this season. Help us to be all about giving you the honor and giving you the credit and giving you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.